Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Manchester Evening News, Newcastle Chronicle and Yorkshire Live. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics from a Northern perspective and outside of the Westminster bubble, you're in the right place. I'm Northern Agenda editor Rob Parsons and we've got a great set of guests in today's episode. In the week when Northern leaders launched a set of five game-changing requests of Boris Johnson's government to help transform our region and boost the Prime Minister's levelling up agenda, we spoke to Liverpool City Region Metro Mayor Steve Rotherham, one of the political leaders behind the call to action, asking why he wants to get the new levelling up minister Michael Gove to Liverpool to turn the North's ambitions into reality. Yeah, not necessarily clubbing because I've seen them dancing, so I, I won't be doing that. But th- there are lots and lots of really good things happening here that he would be interested in. And over the Pennines in South Yorkshire, I've been chatting to Lewis Chinchin, the 22-year-old who recently became not just Sheffield's youngest councillor, but also the first Conservative to get elected to the City Council in the best part of two decades. But I think you know my election and the fact that we came close in in other areas like Stannington and East Ecclesfield and Bayton, that will show to people that actually Conservatives can win in Sheffield and therefore you just need to vote Conservative and you can get more Conservative councillors elected. So two very contrasting voices there, but before we hear from them, why don't we look at one of the more fascinating and actually alarming stories of this week, courtesy of Imperial College in London. It's well known, I think, that the coronavirus pandemic has widened the gulf between the health of many northern communities and their more affluent counterparts in the southeast and London. But new analysis by Imperial shows that in large parts of our region, life expectancy was in fact declining even before last March. So let's hear a bit more about this from Dr. To Jonathan Pearson Stuttart, one of the report's authors, who is also a public health consultant in Northumberland. Johnny, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Robert. It's great to be with you. So take us through some of the headline findings of this report, because there's quite a lot in it for the North, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. So overall, we looked at what had happened to life expectancy from 2002 to 2019 across England, but looking at very small areas, so what we call MSOAs. This covers around 5,000 people at a time. And what we found is that the gap between the MSOAs away the area that had the the best life expectancy and that that had the lowest life expectancy that increased over this time and so there's a 21 year gap for women and a 27 year gap for men in terms of between the best and the worst life expectancies across areas within England. And the gap if I'm correct in thinking there's quite a sort of regional element to it isn't there and for men the gap the biggest gap is between Kensington and Chelsea in London and parts of Blackpool which is 27 years and the biggest gap for women is between, I think, the Holbeck area of Leeds and part of London. So there's a real north-south divide. Very much so. So we tended to find those areas that had the highest life expectancy were generally in southern areas, particularly London and the southeast, and they'd seen continuations of strong improvements in life expectancy. But what some of the really worrying trends was that since 2014, we found that one in five women and one in nine men had actually seen their life expectancy go backwards. So we're so used to life expectancy improving every year that goes by. But actually, we found here that that wasn't the case for several areas. When we look deeper as to which areas these are, they tended to be northern urban areas. Leeds, you mentioned there, Manchester and Newcastle. Urban areas within those regions have done particularly poorly over the last five years. Yeah, I mean, one one thing that stuck out for me was that in Holbeck, which is a inner city area of Leeds, life expectancy for women fell from 78.7 to 75.6 years over the period that you studied of nearly two decades I mean which is astonishing really in the 21st century that that would be that would be happening I mean did did you did you sort of come across any reasons why this might be 
the case in particular areas of, of northern England? So it's clearly a very mixed picture as to exactly why, but we've broadly grouped them into three. There are those healthcare factors. There are higher rates, for example, of obesity, heart disease, vascular conditions that tend to shorten life expectancy in several areas in the north, such as those we've discussed. But also in terms of those risk factors, if you look at something like smoking prevalence or even smoking in pregnancy, which clearly impacts the life expectancy of a child, then we see huge variations with 17-fold differences between Blackpool, for example, where around 28% of women smoke in pregnancy and 1.5% down in Woking. But then if you take one step further back and look at what we call the social determinants of health, that is access to employment, education, homes, quality and so forth, all of which we know have big impacts on life expectancy. Again, there tends to be poorer outcomes in areas in the north, particularly in urban areas, Newcastle, Manchester and Leeds. And we think that's contributed to these widening in inequalities. I mean, I know this issue, the inequalities when it comes to health, is something that the government has started to look at a bit. And I think there was a, a speech that the health secretary Sajid Javid gave quite recently where he spoke about the differences in outcomes between Blackpool and, for example, and other areas. But what, I mean, you and your colleagues from Imperial who've been looking at this, do you have any sense of what needs to be done now to address some of these, the quite stark inequalities that we've seen? Absolutely. There's two broad sort of principles we think should be applied going forward. The first is that whilst we're looking at health inequalities, really we're talking about illness. And in the first instance, this can't just be something that the NHS does. It needs to be joined up across all sectors of government. But then the second side is that we tend to use a sort of one-size-fits-all approach to health and to many other sort of public policy issues. Now, what this study shows is just how very different the health and the illness patterns are of communities across England. So clearly, the response to this needs to be proportionate to that need. And so we should see resources being allocated very much proportionate to where the need is highest. And we're seeing that in very many northern urban areas. A real levelling up of health funding is what's called for. Dr. Jonathan pearson Stuttart from Imperial College London, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Good to talk with you. So that's the academic view, but why don't we hear a bit about what's actually going on on the ground in Holbeck? Christian Johnson, who is a reporter for Yorkshire Live, has spent part of today down in Holbeck, uh, in inner city Leeds, talking to residents about life expectancy and, and what the issues are for them. So um, welcome to the podcast, Christian. Thanks for having me on. No problem at all. So for people who don't know Holbeck in Leeds, why don't you just tell us a bit about the area? So it's very much an inner city area. It's just south of of Leeds city centre. And it's no secret that it is quite a poor neighbourhood. There's quite a big sort of industrial uh, heritage in the area, lots of industrial units there as well. And certainly in recent years, there's been a lot of controversy. Effectively, there's been a, a red light district outside people's homes in Holbeck. So it is somewhere that's seen a lot of issues historically and, and also more recently as well. That red light district has been not closed down exactly, but it's no longer operating. Is that right? Yeah, officially it's it's closed. I think it's something that will take a little while. And that's something that residents raised with me when I, I spoke to them today. It has officially been closed, but they're certainly noticing a lot of activity on their streets. So it is something that's been an ongoing issue and, and, and I'm sure it will be for quite some time. Absolutely. And so you, you spent a few hours down there today. What were people saying about why life expectancy is going backwards there? 
It's something that, as with all things like this, it's a very complex issue and there's no one root cause really. But certainly there's a lot of poverty, people living in poverty there, poor housing, there's a lot of back-to-back houses in the area. A lack of education is something that people mention to me, be that around nutrition or smoking. Certainly things that in other areas of Yorkshire people will take for granted about knowing about, but perhaps in Holbeck that message hasn't filtered all the way through. And even things such as a, a lack of amenities, people will say, that there, there aren't enough doctor surgeries and they can't even get appointments at the ones that are there. So it's something that there's a lot of issues. It's not something that will be fixed overnight by any means. I think the interesting thing about Holbeck, I know I used to work quite near that area, and there are some parts of Holbeck which are quite, you'd almost describe them as uh, gentrified. You know, there's quite a few pubs and bars in that neck of Leeds, but I guess it's kind of a quite divided area in that respect. Yeah, definitely. There's that sort of urban crawl that's coming out from from the city centre. The Leeds South Bank project is, is heading that way where hundreds of millions of pounds are being poured into it. But that's really only on the fringes of Holbeck, in, in Holbeck itself, where a lot of the people live. There's quite a lot of destitution and, and pe- people living in poverty. One thing that, that was mentioned today, I went along to an organisation called Holbeck Together They predominantly in in years gone by have worked with older people in the community, supporting them with making sure they're not socially isolated and getting food out to them. But in recent years, they've sort of twigged onto the fact that although they continue that work, early intervention is so key, particularly around the life expectancy. When I mentioned these shocking figures to them, they were really surprised that it was the worst in the country. But they said that it's not necessarily something that's, that's news to them. They know that people there do live in poverty and they said that while they they help older people at that stage of their lives when they get into their 50s their 60s their 70s they've gone through all the health issues in their younger years which results sadly in this lower life expectancy so they're doing a lot of work with families now to do that early intervention to make sure or try and make sure that people can live longer and know about the benefits of a healthier lifestyle that is christian johnson of yorkshire live who has been in holbeck today talking to locals and you can read more of his dispatch from the area on the Yorkshire Live website as of now. So thank you Christian and why don't we now hear a bit of our interview with Steve Rotherham, the Metro Mayor of the Liverpool City Region. Anyone interested in the politics of the North will remember that it was around September 2019 that Boris Johnson stood before local political and business leaders at the Magna Centre in Rotherham, South Yorkshire to make his big pitch for what his government was going to do for the region. Well, we've had two years, a global pandemic and a general election in that space of time, but the event at which he was speaking, the Convention of the North, is now returning to bring together people from across Northern England to create a shared vision for its future. The next big event will be in Liverpool next January and Northern leaders this week set out their five game-changer asks of government relating to issues like innovation, skills and net zero. They hope these will help the North make a bigger contribution to the national economy and bridge the North-South health gap which widened during the pandemic. So to hear more about what this could mean, who better to speak to than Steve Rotherham, the Metro Mayor of the Liverpool City region and one of the elected Northern figures aiming to drive prosperity encourage innovation and expand opportunities. Welcome, Steve. Thanks, Rob. And for a bit of local insight also, we've got joining us for the interview, Liam Thorpe, the political editor of the Liverpool Echo. Liam, welcome as well. Good to be here, Rob. Excellent. So, Steve, you have invited Michael Gove, Boris Johnson's new levelling up minister, 
to the Convention of the North in Liverpool in January. What specifically are you hoping to get out of those talks with him, assuming that he is able to make it? As you say, Michael Gove, the levelling up minister, the person who's been tasked with trying to see whether we can get a greater economic balance within England. And we need to be putting case, you know, our case forward to um, to go to government because we've got a great story to tell. I mean, I think we were talking about the first industrial revolution started here. Well, the fourth industrial revolution will start here as well. And it needs government support for us to maximise those opportunities and turn that, that promise, that potential into really good jobs and things that can tackle the climate emergency. I think that yourself and other Metro mayors like Andy Burnham and Tracy Braben have met with Mr Gove already since he took post. There's been criticism, I think, that the government has kind of gone a bit cold on devolution of powers to mayors like yourself. I mean, what impression have you got of, under Michael Gove, what whether that, that relationship might, might now improve? Well, I don't know whether it will necessarily just because there's been a change of personality. It needs the government to, to do what it said it wanted to do, which was to rebalance the economy. And to do that, then they've got a minister, a secretary of state, who needs to get out and, and visit places and see for himself what the latent potential of areas are. And we've got all that readily to hand, as have other areas have got uh, devolution. The government can work with us collaboratively. They'll get a win out of it because UK PLC will improve. It will um, see the, the, the financial benefits of this through the Treasury. And of course, areas like ours will get those really good jobs and skills of the future. And so why wouldn't he come to somewhere like the Liverpool City region? So you've got a few places in mind that you'd like to take Michael Gove if he agrees to come to you? Yeah, not necessarily clubbing because I've seen him dancing, so I, I won't be doing that. But th there are lots and lots of really good things happening here that he would be interested in. I'm interested in how yourself and other Metro mayors in the North are getting on, because obviously you're presenting a united front this week. You're presenting your, your game changers to government of what you'd like. But you, you might have seen on our podcast a couple of weeks ago, your Conservative counterpart in the Tees Valley, Ben Houchin, was rather critical of Labour Metro mayors. And he said that you're, you're more interested in playing political games to get exposure rather than delivering results for your areas. I mean, I'm guessing you, you wouldn't agree with that description of yourself and other Labour Metro mayors in the north. Well, I think what Ben's doing is exactly what he accuses other people of doing. He's playing the Mickey Mouse party political games there because we have worked in collaboration. Now, how can we demonstrate that? A place of radicalism like the Liverpool City region led on test and tracing. We did mass testing in Liverpool. It wasn't somewhere else. It wasn't a Tory area. It was here. That was rolled out across the whole country because of the success that we made of it working in collaboration with the national government. We did the, the programme of events um, pilot to open up all of that visitor economy. That was the Liverpool City region, by the way. Not London, not Manchester, but Liverpool City region. So I think he's absolutely wrong to say that we've done that. I'll tell you what we have done now and what I make no apology for doing. I've stood up for my area, Andy stood up for his area, and others have stood up for their areas because that's what we're elected to do. Where we can work collaboratively, we will. But believe me, where we have to stand and, and battle against the intransigence of central government, we'll also do that as well. 
I saw also that um, you may have seen this too, that your counterpart in West Yorkshire, Tracy Brabin, announced in the last few days that she, after considering it, is not going to impose a, a mayoral precept, so an extra tax on local residents to help pay for you know big mayoral projects because of the current cost of living crisis, which we all know well. I know yourself and Andy in Greater Manchester still have that preset. Is that something you're still planning to keep in place, given you know the squeeze that a lot of people are feeling in their in their wallets at the moment? Well, Tracy wanted to perhaps look at this to see whether she could do some big projects with it. That's not the reason that we we had to implement a, a precept. It was because the government reneged on their promise to properly fund us. So they said, for instance, you get thirty million pounds a year. And that should cover your costs. What actually happened was the government decided that they would give us 75% of that in capital and only 25% of that in revenue. In other words, we wouldn't have had the capacity to build an organization so that we can put forward business cases to win some of those pots of money. So we, we, we were left with no alternative but to do what we've done. And it, that money has been invested. And if you have a look at the return on that investment, We've had hundreds of millions of pounds in additional funding that we would not have been able to have accessed other than we built a business case that was accepted by central government. We did that because of the money that we've been able to raise through the precept. I'm interested also, Steve, the final question. What, what do you make of the state of the, the Labour Party at the moment? Obviously, you're a proud Labour member and Keir Starmer is trying to win back voters in areas like yours after the 2019 general election. How how do you think he's doing? And and I mean, obviously, there was the recent op-ed that he ran in the Sun newspaper. I mean, did, did that damage his chances, do you think? I think the first thing is to, to explain my personal relationship with the, with the Labour Party. I love the Labour Party. I think the Labour Party is the greatest organ for social progress that this country has ever seen. And I know that's a bold statement because there have been lots and lots of other good stuff. But that's the Labour Party that I now recognise. The values and principles of the Labour Party are the thing that drive me forward every single day uh, about that battle for social justice, about trying to level up some of those inequalities, about the fact that misperceptions have existed for far too long in certain areas of the country and the party is um, having to work hard to uh, ensure that we can tackle some of those things. But it's still the Labour Party for me. And sometimes, even with my own kids, I don't always love what they do, but they're still my kids and I love them dearly. So that's the same with the party. Now, I, I think because we feel so passionately about, for instance, that rag uh, and what it did to us, we expect that everybody else will automatically understand it, and they don't. Um, that newspaper is still toxic here and will be forever, but the visceral feeling that we have against it is not always shared, and we need to better explain to people and educate people about the part they played in not just Britain's worst sporting disaster and the aftermath and the cover-up, but then the long-term damage that that did to us as a people, as scousers, if you like, as people from the city of Egypt. And, and not everybody grasps that. So I, I had a conversation, I uh, was speaking to Liam earlier, I had a conversation with the leader of the Labour Party, 
and, and said to, to Kia um, that this was going to have a really, really detrimental knock-on effect to people in the Liverpool City region. You know, they, they would be rightly disappointed in any Labour leader, any Labour leading politician speaking to that um, that that newspaper that... Um, I, I won't be too um, disparaging about it, but you probably gather my feelings from it. Um, and, and, and I think he certainly understood the message um, and the way, in, I think, in future that we need to ensure that people better understand why we feel the way we feel is to educate. Do you think now that you've explained that to him, do you feel like maybe he regrets regrets what he did or do you think perhaps he he considers that you know on the balance of things it was still the right thing to do to you know get his message out to a broader audience i think he will regret upsetting the people in the liverpool city region by the way a labor heartland you know somewhere that we do time and time again go out and support the labor party and and for me that's the right thing to do because of the radical nature of the, the psyche in the Liverpool City region. But um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely 100% certain that he didn't want to upset anybody. And perhaps because that Westminster bubble is very different and I've lived in it, I feel I was a member of parliament, I've lived in it. They don't see things the way that we see things here. Now, Liam, I think you've got a couple of questions for Steve. Just a little bit following on, as we've discussed a few times, when you talk about the, the sort of the psyche of, of, of people in this region, it's it's intensely passionate about about politics, about about what people consider right and wrong. And there are some people that think that you, as a Labour leader here, shouldn't actually have anything to do with the Tory government, that you should pretty much close yourself off to them and, and not have any dealings with them. And, and you, you get a bit of stick when you do. How do you balance that? Is it, again, about explaining to people that nothing could get done for the benefit of this region if you don't? engage with government. Liam, they're the government of the day. I wish they weren't, but they are the government of the day. And it's just about 12 months, you know, since we went into the highest tier. You'll remember what happened around that and the absolute avalanche of criticism that I got from us um, working with a national government of, of, of a Tory complexion and, and going into the highest tier then um, in regards to lockdown and restrictions. But the analysis will show we saved lives. So you can't play politics with people's lives. And I'm talking about life or death decisions. That's what we were taking at that time. People forget where we were in, that, um, in, uh, in the infection curve and the transmission rates in the city region. We were the third highest in some of our areas in Europe, and we knew that we were going to see people unnecessarily suffering or dying, and we took that bold decision as seven leaders, and it was the right thing to do, and, I, and we're doing some independent analysis, we've got somebody who's looking at that, and we know it was the right thing. If we decided not to work with government, people would have died, and that, that's the simple choice that we had, so you have to sometimes work with them. It's a frustration, Liam, because some departments are awful. And I think they're being awful, whether they're being Labour or Tory, if I'm absolutely honest, or coalition, uh, like Department for Education. You just can't get them to do the things, even though you can explain the business case for them and win over the arguments. They just want to, to centralise and we, we, we need them to, uh, to look at 
devolve instead of, of taking um, power back into the centre. But we, we have to try and persuade them. And that's why, you know, it, it's a regular thing, isn't it, where I meet with uh, secretaries of state and try to explain the case that we're putting forward because it's an investment opportunity for national government um, and they can get a return on that investment if they work with us. Now, you were talking before about part of that working with government as saw Liverpool in particular, um, but the region as well, pilot a number of very forward-thinking and important schemes were involved in, played a big part in helping us get out of the pandemic. Liverpool's reputation then took a massive hit because of the Max Collar report, probably up there with the most historically bad reports into a city council that anyone's ever seen. That's the big city in your in your region. How do you think things are improving? We've got new leadership, we've got new direction. I presume you have regular contact with, with the Mayor of Liverpool and, and, and leaders at the council. And obviously we've got commissioners in place now in that council. I know that's not your direct responsibility, but it's such a big player in your region. How do you think things are kind of progressing forward after the, the devastation of, of that report? Let's not kid ourselves. It was hugely damaging to the reputation of Liverpool, but Liverpool is the brand as well. So it's the Liverpool City region because Liverpool as a global brand is so important. I mean, it's probably the second most recognised of all of the UK cities after London. And, you know, so we've got some of the, the other capitals that we come before because of, of the history of the place. So anything that has a detrimental impact, of course, is regrettable. But what I would say is that it hopefully has put a line in the sand and we need to move forward because if you have a look at that new leadership and, and Joanne Anderson is doing a great job in trying to, to keep things going and steadying the ship and all that sort of stuff because she's fairly new to, uh, to, to um, politics at that level. But she's doing a great job and um, we've got seven leaders now, myself and another six leaders of the, the different areas who are probably more cohesive, more uh, together um, than I think any leadership has been in recent history in, in this, the city region. So Liverpool remains the epicentre of the city region. As a city itself, it is the economic driver, it's the engine room, and of course, it's also the visitor economy hub as well, which is, again, you know, one of the biggest sectors. So. I think Liverpool, as part of the city region, its future is very, very strong as we start to go forward and do some of the stuff that we've said that we wanted to do in this report, which is the Convention of the North stuff, about, for instance, connecting up ourselves in Greater Manchester, et cetera, et cetera, right the way across the corridor. That was going to be my, my last question, actually, because it kind of links to, to this idea of you know mayors working together. I think you mentioned it at the event this morning that the, the intense rivalry between Liverpool and Manchester has, has, has perhaps sometimes got in the way of the progress of these two northern powerhouses working together. Now we've got yourself and your very close mate Andy Burnham in Greater Manchester. Is, is part of the success of both of these areas working together to unlock the potential of, I guess, the Northwest as a whole? I think people can be slightly disparaging at times about our friendship, but it's a genuine friendship. We're, we're busy mates and we just happen to be politicians i mean you're allowed to have friends as politicians and he happens to be the metro mayor of greater manchester and i'm the metro mayor of Liverpool city region and what we do is we look towards um areas of complementarity to see whether there's things that greater manchester and ourselves can do better together 
and, and I keep on saying, you know, they've got uh, an international airport and we've got an airport ourselves. We've got a in, an international seaport and they've got some, you know, docks themselves and all that sort of that, that's a huge benefit to the Northwest and to UK PLC. And that's what we try to do. We try to look at those things and put aside, in all honesty, Liam, some of the the more, you know, Mickey Mouse tribalism that has far too often stifled the fact that if we work together with the size of, of Scotland, you know, that, that's how big the prize is for us. So we need to be bigger hitters on the, the national stage and the two of us I'm telling you working together and then those other northern leaders all working together it's powerful for governments I think it's too powerful for the governments to ignore much longer Steve there's a lot to chew over there and we will be hearing a lot more of these arguments I think between now and January when we'll all gather for the convention of the north in Liverpool so Steve Rotherham Metro Mayor of the Liverpool City Region thank you very much thank you So this May's local elections in Sheffield were a pretty momentous occasion for the political scene in South Yorkshire's Steel City. The ruling Labour group lost control of the council for the first time in a decade and have now had to form a coalition with the Green Party. And the results of a landmark referendum mean Sheffield City Council will now be run by a system of committees rather than the cabinet model seen in most parts of the north. What may have gone under the radar a little is that Sheffield has also elected their first Conservative councillor since 2004 in the form of Lewis Chinchin, who at 22 is also the youngest councillor in the city in the Stocksbridge and Upper Don Ward. Such was his achievement that at last week's Tory conference in Manchester, Lewis, who is also a freelance writer, was even invited to talk about his experiences of being a councillor to his fellow Conservative activists. So, Lewis Chinchin, welcome to the podcast. It's nice to have you on. Thank you very much for having me, Rob. No problem at all. So you arrived in Sheffield, I gather, at the age of 13, and you joined the Conservatives three years later at the age of 16. Can you tell me a bit about your politics at that age? Because I, I, I'm imagining you were perhaps swimming against the tide a bit with you know, being a Conservative. Yeah, sure. I um, I became, as you say, a, a member of the party when I was, when I was 16. So after the 2015 election, I, I became much more interested in politics and um, national politics, local politics and just various issues which were affecting my area and, and, and the country as a whole. And I wanted to sort of get more involved in um, in the local party. So I, I signed up and, and it sort of began from there and um, with with door knocking and helping other candidates with, with their campaigns and and canvassing and leafleting and and all the usual traditional campaigning um and then just sort of building up that that experience but i think the most valuable thing from sort of starting at that age is you you end up speaking to people and you know speaking to people on doorsteps that's i don't think there's anything really more valuable you can do in terms of building up um your sort of your skill set to to sort of be a, a counselor because i think the most important thing about being a counsellor is is listening to people. So, so I think that was really important. As a young teenage conservative in a northern city, did that? How, how did that go down with with you know your, your school friends and like the people that you interacted with in Sheffield? How did they treat you? Well, I have like minded friends, so it wasn't too much of an issue there. But um, I think you know, obviously, there's um, a lot of young people that may not naturally align to the Conservative Party, and I think that's. 
um, you know, it's something that the, the Conservative Party is is actively working on. And I myself set up um, Sheffield Young Conservatives to try and engage more young people in um, it, within our party and, and get them more involved in in those campaign events and um, and various things we, we pull on to try and bring them in. Um, so there's a lot of work going on there, but obviously there's more we, we can do. Um, and I think, you know, that there may, there, pro- there probably are other people within, within the city that, you know, perhaps don't warm to, to me as a conservative, but I think there's always going to be that diversity of opinion. That's, that's the nature of politics. And, and actually that's, that's a good thing. We, we need different opinions and, and that's how you get better, better policy at the end of the day. I mean, from following Yorkshire politics for a few years, as I have been doing, I, I always get the sense, maybe this is a just a Leeds thing, that uh, Sheffield likes to do things its own way a little bit. I mean, how would you characterise the state of local politics in Sheffield at the moment? And has it been easy for you to be heard in that sort of in that climate? In Sheffield, it's obviously since May, the political landscape has changed quite dramatically. And that's going to have a big impact on on policy and the sort of issues which take centre stage um within the city um i think there are there are certain things which um you, you know big local issues at the moment regarding the city center and and transport and you know particularly buses and and you know how we how we really sort of um you know compete with our regional competitors in uh, elsewhere in yorkshire like leeds um and then also across the pennines in in manchester you know how do we make sheffield um you know a much more competitive city how do we bring in the investment that's needed um to, to make the the city thrive those are the sorts of questions which i think um we'll be looking at as as councillors and i hope to be able to you know, obviously, I am one conservative of, of 84 councillors overall. So, um, but I think that that's going to require, therefore, cross-party working, which I think is a good thing. I think we need uh, more cross-party working. I think a lot of the time um, uh, politics is is too much about point scoring, especially in, in some council meetings and sort of playing to um to, to the media and and sort of trying to to make headlines and actually we should be focused more on working together on the issues which matter and trying to sort of build that consensus um so that's that's where i'm sort of approaching uh, it from and and i hope to be able to sort of work with the other parties as a conservative i will you know always sort of call out um the administration when i think they're getting it wrong um but i think my um my my voting record shows that you know if it's something I agree with it doesn't matter which party is putting it forward I'll I'll support it and I think the people of Sheffield actually want to see that sort of cross-party um engagement and what's been the reaction from your fellow councillors to having you there I mean both as a a lone conservative amongst 84 and also as a you know the youngest councillor in the city have they have they been mostly helpful and welcoming or has there been any kind of a hostility yeah no I I, I definitely say and I I get asked this a lot and I, I I always say that you know that with the the vast majority of councillors I I have you know good relationships with and you know with 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 most of them we we disagree politically on on many issues um and that's and that's just the way it is but but I think there's a lot of things that uh, especially in local politics that you know, it doesn't matter which party 
you're from so much if it's you know if you're trying to improve say road safety at a particular junction it doesn't really matter whether you're um a conservative or or, or labor um so so i i work a lot with other councillors on those sort of issues and and um and, and yeah we have we have good relationships and and as i say if there's something that is put forward in a council meeting from another party and it's something i agree with i'll vote for it um but at the same time you know i am i do recognize that um the well the reason i'm uh, i came into local politics was because i thought we felt we needed something different so i'm not afraid to sort of call out the things which i, I think the administration are getting wrong um and i think I've, I've sort of shown that in in the past few weeks but um but yeah no overall most councillors uh, have been pretty welcoming which is uh, w- which is a good thing I think perhaps most people outside Sheffield, maybe prior to this year, wouldn't think of it as a city where Conservatives traditionally would thrive. I mean, you, obviously, there's uh, Miriam Cates has now been elected as MP in Penniston and Stockbridge. But do you think it's realistic that you can build on you know on your success and her success uh, at the ballot box? Definitely. Um, I, I think you only have to look at the popular vote that we received in May. I mean, we received as Conservatives around 26,000 votes um, across the city of Sheffield. And to put that in some context, um, that only came in about um, sort of the Lib Dems and, and the Greens were on about 28,000, 28,500. Um, so, you know, not too far behind in the scheme of things. Um, yet we only have one councillor. So, you know, with a proportional, a proportional system in May, we would have been sitting here with, with a group of Conservative councillors, more than the one we have now. So... Um, so I think, you know, that's the sort of message we're trying to get across that actually there's a lot of conservative voters in Sheffield. And I think in the past, the reason why some people um, who are naturally conservative haven't voted conservative is because they think conservatives can't win in Sheffield. So what's the point? And they, they end up voting tactically. Um, but I think, you know, my election and the fact that we came close in in other areas like Stannington and East Ecclesfield and Baton, um, that will show to people that actually Conservatives can win in Sheffield and therefore you just need to vote Conservative and you can get more Conservative councillors elected. So those shy Conservatives might come out of the woodwork in the next in the next few elections. That's interesting. And finally, you've got into elected politics obviously at a young age can we expect to see you going for higher office in the years ahead at the moment i'm fully focused on on being a councillor i think you know i've i've got plenty to to be getting on with uh with with various um local issues and and i you know i i enjoy um being a councillor and i think um you know it's a, it's it's a demanding job um but it's it's an incredibly rewarding one um, you get the opportunity to to you know have a have an important say on on various issues affecting the city and um, and various issues affecting your particular ward. Um, and when you achieve things, when you get a piece of get a bit of funding for um, for a particular project or or you you know you set up a particular community group, that's that's what the job's all about. So yeah, I'm I'm enjoying being a councillor at the moment, and that's what I'm focused on. Lewis Chin Chen, thank you very much for speaking to us. Thank you very much, Rob. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at 
thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and Dan O'Donoghue, and it's produced by Daniel J. McCoughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts, like this one. See you next week. There's a shadow hanging over Lee. For the past 36 years, a murder has loomed in the memories of this small mill town near Wigan. This is the story of a young girl robbed of her life one winter night in 1984. This is the story of a murder that still remains unsolved today. This is the story of a case that has haunted my career. My name is Neil Keeling and this is Testimony. I think Lisa's killer was infatuated with her. Where Lisa lives, I believe that's where the killer will be from. She wouldn't have, if somebody had shouted her, she'd have had to know them to go anywhere near that box. She wouldn't have took a shortcut. But while we were all at home safe, less than two minutes from our door, my best friend was fighting for a life and we hadn't got a clue. And if we had a clue, she must be today. My gut instinct is that the person who, who murdered Lisa must have been local, must have known the area, and must have known, you know, this back entry gill that uh, afforded some degree of seclusion for him to drag Lisa down and murder. I'm convinced even after over 30 years, he will be caught. And I'm telling you, I'm not having it that someone doesn't know who the, who the person is who, who killed Lisa Hessian. If I'm right then, then the person shielded him is just as guilty. There's no one left to fight for justice for Lisa Hessian except Greater Manchester Police's cold case unit and journalists like me. I haven't given up and I hope that one day they will find the man who murdered Lisa Hessian. <laughs>